Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusaders. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Podcast episode 36 for March MMXII. Episode 36 is brought to you by this public service announcement. I'll never learn to ski, especially if you quit trying. Scarlet! You'll never win if you give in. But I just can't do it! Can you ride a bike? Well, sure I can. But could you at first? No, I had to practice for weeks. Batgirl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are Maze Background Number 10 and Birds of Prey Number 10, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, it is really the end of March. I hope that maybe some of you had an actual winter. I miss that I had no winter. I was unable to go snowboarding at all this season and now we're just thrust into spring fever. Uh, March Madness is going on. Hopefully your brackets are still functioning well. Uh, for those of you that follow basketball, mine somewhat broke with some of these strange defeats like Norfolk. Um, and Lehigh <laughs> beating really good schools, but it's still it 
it's still going. I have Kentucky winning it all. But uh, no big news today. Hopefully you saw Super Best Friends Forever. It was on last Saturday. Uh, I believe that would have been the 18th. No, that seems wrong. The 17th, I guess, uh, of March. And so that was exciting just to see a Bubbly Babs and then uh, Donna Troy, of course, and Supergirl with her. But, you know, without further ado, I've got huge Batman family, huge Batman family issues and multiple parts of them. So just kind of want to dive right into it. So first up, we have Batman family number 15, Find the Batcave and Rule the Underworld. Uh, its cover date is December 1977 through January 1978. Writer Bob Rosakis, Art Lee Elias, and Joe Giella, and colorist Jerry Serpe. Also included in this issue is Target the Shotgun Sniper with Man Bat and Jason Bard. Batman's Bureau of Missing Villains featuring Mr. Polka Dot. Yes, Mr. Polka Dot. Uh, some good quotes that really came out of this. Call the police. We are the police. And back off, Commissioner. Old fuddy-duddies like you are no match for Killer Moth. And that was from his daughter. Couldn't believe she called him a fuddy-duddy. Okay, prologue. We are looking in on the Gotham City hangout of millionaires Cameron Von Clear, a.k.a. Killer Moth, and Mortimer Drake, a.k.a. the Cavalier. The two are attacking portraits containing the likenesses of Robin and Batgirl. The Cavalier argues that Batman would never trust his innermost secrets to a frivolous female, and Robin is more likely the source for the information they seek. Killer Marth argues that Batgirl could hardly be called frivolous after what she did to them in Batman Family Number 10. Killer Moth wants to bet 20 grand that Batgirl has the information and that he will get it first, but Cavalier just wants to make a gentleman's wager. And what is the information that they are looking for? The location of the Batcave. With it, they will become the kingpins of the underworld. Part 1. Batgirl, starring in Moth-Ridden Murder. One week later, Killer Moth is pulling his third caper, and only the boys in blue are showing up, not the Domino Daredoll, as he would wish. He shoots the cops with a cocoon gun and is overjoyed to hear the putt-putt of the bat cycle. At the scene, Batgirl asks the cops where Moth went, and they point in the direction that he went, but Moth sneaks around the opposite way and messes with Batgirl's bike. Batgirl realizes she was duped into following a false trail once she finds a note for her left by Moth on a light pole. Coming back to her bike and the cops, she frees the officers from the cocoons, and let they let her know that Moth did something to her bike. Batgirl is no fool and has learned her lesson when the outsider messed with her bike back in Batman Family Number 13. Her bike explodes and leaves a moth-shaped smoke cloud that says he will be going for Batman next. Batgirl goes to a payphone to call Batman to warn him, and Killer Moth has turned his antennae to listen in. Luckily, Batgirl thinks that something is up and calls her father, Commissioner Gordon, but plays it loose and impersonal, hoping that her father will catch on. She asks him to warn Batman and that she will be coming to town for the Police Athletic League dinner the next night. The following night, at said dinner, Batgirl is finishing her speech about a healthy mind and body when we catch sight of a creeper checking her out and making sinister threats. It's Killer Moth, and he goes after Commissioner Gordon and Batgirl when they are outside of the restaurant. Killer Moth captures Batgirl inside of a cocoon, and he brings her to Gotham Stadium and attaches her to a bright light. Luckily, the lights are so hot that they melt the cocoon and she flees. She notices that he keeps saying Batman is his next victim, so she knows something is up. 
After fleeing Gotham Stadium, she goes to a beachfront community across the river from Gotham, which happens to be Jason Bard's home. Moth automatically assumes Bard is Batman and goes to search for the Batcave. He is able to find a cave and goes inside to investigate when he runs into Batgirl. She takes his cocoon gun and takes him out rather quickly. She tells him that she knew his game all along and that he has been hanging out with the Cavalier too long if he thought she wasn't smart enough to realize the game. Women are not the weaker sex in mind or body, especially when dealing with jerks like you. She throws him into Gotham River and we next see him in custody of two cops with Gordon and Bard standing by, asking why Moth didn't learn his lesson from Batman number 63 way back in March 1951 when he first tried to find the Batcave. Gordon and Batgirl drive away together in hopes of finding an all-night eatery. Part 2, Robin, starring in Cavalier Con Game. In New Carthage, earlier the same day that Batgirl defeated Killer Moth, Robin is swinging towards Killer Moth, who has left New Carthage National Bank with a bag of loot. Robin throws a battering at Moth and knocks his cocoon gun out of his hand when Moth suddenly disappears in a puff of smoke. Robin is confused when Lieutenant Tatum asks him to explain what happened. Robin picks up his battering, which feels strange to him, and finds out that Killer Moth was seen in Washington yesterday and today in New Carthage, but has not stolen anything from the bank. As Robin and Tatum walk from the scene, Cavalier appears suddenly with the battering, happy with the tricks he has learned at the Isle of 1000 Thrills. Later at Tatum's office, Robin continues to investigate the battering, knowing it is not the one he threw, because when he picked it up, it wasn't in the same position as when it went to the ground. Looking closely, he finds a microdot-sized bugging device too small to pick up a conversation, but big enough to force someone to keep tabs on Robin. Luckily, Robin knows that there has to be a thumbprint on the device from the placement of it on the battering. Robin leaves Tatum and rides outside the town limits with Cavalier on his tail. Robin leads him to an enormous tree, and Cavalier comes just in time to see him exit from a trap door in the trunk of the tree. Cavalier makes his way inside, thinking this is the Batcave, and finds a great deal of technology, including an interplanetary communicator between Earth and Nibor, nourishment dispensers, and a rest chamber, which happens to be, get this people, an enormous nest. Cavalier comes to the conclusion that Robin, and undoubtedly Batman as well, are aliens like Superman, assuming human form, but they are in reality a bird. Or, they both are birds. Robin appears and plays the part of Alien as he fights Cavalier. Cavalier cuts Robin's utility belt, but Robin is able to overcome him with this combat knowledge. The story ends with Cavalier in handcuffs. Epilogue. Dick and Babs are talking on the phone about what had transpired. They joke about Cavalier believing the Alien Act, and Babs wonders where the Alien Sanctuary came from. Dick won't reveal his secrets, but we see in Thought Bubble that... Superman helps him pull off the hoax. The story ends at Gotham State Prison, with Killer Moth arguing that he found Batman's true identity, being Jason Bard, and Cavalier says this is impossible since he was fighting in the Vietnam War when Batman was fighting crime in Gotham. Cavalier then says that Batman and Robin are bird creatures from the planet Nibor. Moth says that it is obviously a hoax since Nibor is Robin spelled backwards. Well, oh man, crazy issue. I was actually really surprised to see Cavalier and Killer Moth again, and underestimating Batgirl since they were defeated by her and Batwoman back in uh, Batman Family Number 10. Apparently, this duo hates Batgirl and Robin way more since they went to all the trouble of making portraits of the two for use in target practice.
I feel like Killer Moth's scheme is way less planned out than Cavalier's. Uh, it seems too obvious what he is doing with the light on the lamppost. Uh, not the light on the lamppost, but the the note on the lamppost, the talking smoke, careless moments dotted throughout. You know, Batgirl knew right away what was going on, but Robin at least had to investigate a little while. I think it's fitting to see Killer Moth going after Batgirl since we could almost say that he gave her her own start. I am glad that the, the commish, despite being a fuddy-duddy, was able to catch on so quickly on the phone call. I feel like, um, in my experience, probably I would not have caught on as quickly. So it was a leap of faith, certainly, for Babs to, to play that in that manner. Okay, how interesting that there is a dinner for the police athletic league. Could this be some sort of subtle message, you know, telling police to shape up or something? Who knows? And back then, you know, in the 70s, I don't know. That whole scene outside the dinner is ridiculous. You know, what with the woman shouting for the police, and the police are there. Becker calling her father a fuddy-duddy, and frankly, Moth attacking right outside a dinner hall full of police officers. I mean, how stupid can you get? I think it's pretty awful the way Jason Bard is brought back into this comic. I mean, he was such an important part of Baz's life, and then ceremoniously is ditched, and we see him for the first time again in such a random way. The editors must have obviously believed we all forgot about him since there is such a large box of biographical information accompanying his first panel. And then he says he has to go to New York at the end of the story, which is funny because you flip a few pages later, and there he is in New York with Man Bat. Now, why does Batgirl go to Jason Bart in the first place? What could that move possibly have accomplished? You know, was it only for the cave? Why didn't she call ahead like Robin obviously must have done with soups? You know, this is the first time we have even seen Babs at his place, though we can certainly assume that she's been there before. I'd also like to know how he or how she got into the cave. Was there a back entrance? And how is she able to get hold of Killer Moth's cocoon gun? You know, I've looked over that so many times and still I have no idea. I'm surprised no one thought it strange Batgirl getting into a car with Gordon. Uh, it, it was just kind of normal for them to go and then find a diner. And I'd like to know a little more about Cavalier. Uh, how was he able to get these mysterious illusion tricks? Yes, we, he, he learned it through the Isle of a Thousand Thrills, but even in Batman Family Number 10, we don't really learn how he learned these tricks. And it's just sort of, we're supposed to take it on faith, I guess. I still cannot believe how misogynistic uh, Cavalier is, so easily thinking Batgirl is weak. I mean, Batgirl could almost certainly have been able to be placed in this in this particular part, rather than Robin, since she could have proved her strong sex. Instead, we have her speech given to Killer Moth, who definitely showed his appreciation for Batgirl, so it's almost lost on him. I do think that the Cavalier definitely had a smarter plan for Robin, and it makes him think. But, you know, while you may start believing that Cavalier is intelligent, uh, to be so easily duped by sugar cubes acting as artificially manufactured foodstuffs, well, he obviously is a little gullible. Seeing that giant bird's nest is pretty hilarious. Uh, both parts have an elaborate fight scene in common, uh, which really show off the prowess of our heroes. And then, concerning this entire sanctuary here with Robin, how exactly did Superman make that sanctuary so quickly? Obviously, he can work fast, but how did he get all this tech? Assuming Robin called him while he was in Tatum's office, it doesn't seem like a lot of time between Robin leaving and arriving at that giant tree. It seems a little unbelievable because Superman obviously is not Batman, so he doesn't have his tech. He doesn't have the money, you know, he doesn't have the resources. Not really as much know-how. I mean, obviously, he would know more alien species, perhaps, but I don't know. Maybe some of the tech is really alien tech that he got from his own Fortress of Solitude. 
And then, you know, why won't Dick tell Babs that Soup's helped him? What would that betray? She already knows, obviously, about his identity. The epilogue is so strange in general. I was half expecting Dick to turn to us, break the fourth wall again, and then explain to us what happened. The first panel with Dick, you know, he does look like good old rich, uh, Richard Grayson. And then the next panel, look, he looks just like Bruce Wayne, and it kind of weirds me out. Definitely check that out and, and tell me if I'm wrong. And... Also, why does Killer Moth have his mask on in prison? You know, don't they usually take villains' accoutrements away? And in the epilogue, Babs actually has green eyes, while throughout her part, she has blue ones. Um, so we're also... Um, that's kind of confusing, isn't it? Coloring. And then we're also back to the colorless, colorless version of the Batgirl cowl, which is interesting to note. Overall, I mean, it was an interesting, albeit strange, but aren't all of these 70s Batman family issues strange issue. And I give it 8 out of 10 bats. On to the letters page. Dear Editor, let's get one thing clear right from the start. This is going to be another Bob Rosakis fan letter. Now that that's straightened out, on with the LOC. The three stories featured in Batman Family Number 12 are ample proof that the combination of charming characters and good stories makes it hard not to enjoy the magazine. I Am Batgirl's Brother was quite simply an excellent story. Our heroine had plenty of action, which is, after all, what superhero comics are all about. The surprise narration by Tony Gordon was a nice touch. It's too bad he couldn't let Babs know he was still alive. I would really like Babs and Commissioner Gordon to see Tony again, but oh well. Bob wrote a very warm and human tale, featuring good characterization on Tony, plus his usual dynamic work on Batgirl. Man Bat is also being characterized well, even though the plots of his tales are weird. But once you can accept the idea of a guy who turns into a bat creature, I guess you can swallow a were-jaguar. The writing both plot and narration was of high quality in Dread Knight of the Jaguar, and the portrayals of Kirk and Francine are interesting. Rogers and Austin provide excellent art in this series, and all in all, Man Bat is a nice change of pace. It manages to be at once absurd and realistic. Rally Round Robin provided another dose of realism and escapism. I think this is the first time I've seen comics hero writing a paper. Boy, could I sympathize with Dick. The byplay between him and Warrior and his efforts to apprehend the crooks without her getting wise to his secret identity were extremely amusing. The epilogue was a free, real cliffhanger, but two months is an extremely long time to wait after the intriguing introduction you've given us. That was a not-so-subtle hint, gents. Is eight times a year possible? One more thing. I suppose you won't tell me where, but I'm dying to know if Hudson University and New Carthage are modeled after or have counterparts in reality slash Earth Prime. There's no point in my going crazy looking for clues if it's all a figment of Bob's imagination. Beth Montalone, Rochester, New York. A couple of our Long Island-based readers have pointed out a startling similarity between Hudson and Hofstra University, most notably the Unispan which appeared in BF number 6, which is not so surprising considering the latter school is the alma mater of yours truly. And as for eight times a year status, it's here now, but due to change in conjunction with some big news we'll be revealing next issue, BR. Dear Editor, I feared the worst upon reading the title, I Am Batgirl's Brother. 
I anticipated another uninspired result of DC's recent young relative epidemic, i.e. Steve Lombard's nephew, Pete Ross's son, Morgan Edge's niece, but no. This is, wow, Pete Ross's son, really? But no, this is one of DC's best writers scripting DC's best magazine, and thanks to Bob Rosakis, an ordinary idea treated with intelligence, poignancy, and respect for the past produced, another winner for Batgirl. The irony of the last panel, the fact that Tony's letter could serve only to clear up his own thoughts and never Batgirl's, was inspired writing, creating in my mind a genuine respect for Tony that, after one 11-page appearance, makes his loss seem a loss for Batgirl and DC as well. Robin's story was also built on a less-than-original foundation. First meeting of the Robin Rooters, yuck. But who cares? Lori Elton is to Dick Grayson what Iris is to Barry Allen, a companion, a foil, a pleasure, an inspiration, and a genuine personality with energy and determination to assist her boyfriend-slash-husband. Uh, seeing how the magazine has become DC's center for exposed identities, I'm hoping that Dick won't be able or eager to withhold his secret from Lori much longer. Once Lori knows about Dick slash Robin, her full potential as an active character can be explored, especially regarding her role in the robin Batgirl relationship. As for the letter page bit about Robin Hood, Robin found his groove the moment Bob Rosaka started scripting him. Personally, I'm not in favor of trading a superlative supporting cast, fine plots, and wonderful dialogue dialogue for stories about a vigilante and his callow sidekicks, no matter how merry they may be. With little room left, I'll add that Man Bat's Dread Knight has to be one of the strangest stories I've read, and that the outstanding Rogers Austin artwork complemented Bob Swift's storytelling so well that now, on my third reading, the idea of Man Bat becoming a were-jaguar, the South American Indian type no less, seems perfectly logical. Thomas Krasker, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Further comments on Robin Hood fill our special delivery page elsewhere in this issue. As for the Unturunku, read on. Dear Julie and Bob, At first I found the were-jaguar shtick and dread knight of the jaguar a trifle hard to accept, but it soon became believable, up to a point. That is, it seems odd for both Europe and South America to have their own were-creatures. Maybe if you would back up this idea with some documentation to show that it is a true legend, I could take it more seriously. Mike White, Makana, Illinois. Short of producing an Uturunku for your inspection, we, oh my gosh, we offer the following data. The name was found in Julie's copy of Rogette's Theosaurus during the plotting session of the Manbat Tale. The search for a definition ended with fellow editor Murray Boltonoff's unabridged dictionary, which gave us the authentic information utilized in the story. Curiously, later editions of both books do not list it, making the word almost as elusive as the creature itself, Bob Rosakis. In Batman Family Number 12, reader Craig Boldman came up with some rather unorthodox suggestions about changing Robin, and it is to the replies to those suggestions that we devote this special delivery column. Dear Julie, in reference to Craig Boldman's letter, I would like to say here and now that Robin needs no change in appearance or title. Not only would it destroy the character that keeps me interested in comics as a whole, but it would also destroy a basic identification symbol of DC. To continue the ever-necessary work of building Robin's inner character is something I am emphatically for. But to change Robin's name and costume, however steeped both may be in their sidekick origins, would defeat the efforts of improving the character that have already been made. These efforts have by and large been focused on Dick Grayson's maturation, trying to come to terms with the boyhood crime-fighting persona. This conflict is a basic one with Robin, one that has only seen the beginning of its potential, which would be forever lost if Boltzmann's suggestions were acted upon. Besides, Robin already leads his own band of sidekicks, the Teen Titans. Sidekicks aren't limited to junior partners, you know. He is more or less recognized as their leader. 
Robin is easily one of the most recognizable of DC's characters. Changing that look would destroy that recognition. A reader looking for the familiar Robin not finding him might never look again, resulting in a lost reader. Robin should constantly strive to make his long-established crime-fighting identity a force to be reckoned with. His struggle to make Robin credible on his own as an adult would provide story potential rare in comics. Don't pass this opportunity up. As a Robin rooter of many years, I say leave Robin the visual symbol he is. The real job is the development of Robin sans mask. Dick Grayson. Gary Leach, Springfield, Missouri. Dear Editor, Robin Hood? The idea of a Robin Hood-style Robin is awful. I like the boy wonder the way he is now, 19 and punning all the time, be it with Batgirl, Batman, or on his own. Robin is not just Batman's younger associate. He is a character coming into his own. I grew up reading Robin's adventures and identified with him, and still do. Readers don't have to settle for Robin just as Batman's sidekick. As we know him now, Robin is his own man, worthy of his well-earned soul spots. Leave him the way he is. Roma... Whoa, Pohoreki, Winnipeg, oh, Manitoba, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Robin as Robin Hood? Fantastic. Craig Boldman was really right. Robin was, and still is, too much like we are for us to either relate or associate with. As a Robin Hood-type character, sans bow and arrows, he could branch off into a whole new direction. Of course, he could keep it up with Batgirl. Carlton Donahue, Deming, uh, New Mexico. I disagree with Craig Bolden 100%. I don't feel Robin was created as a sidekick. If he hadn't come along, imagine how lonely the Batman would have been. Robin really changed Batman's life. And as for having a sidekick name and a sidekick look, he has a true name that is respected and feared among criminals. Keep him as he is. D.D. Linnell, Missoula, Montana. Robin doesn't act like, think like, or get involved in things a sidekick does. Yes, his costume was designed for a sidekick, but long pants could change all that. Or he could become Owlman again, as in Batman 107, which might be best since owls are nocturnal, and after being trained by the Batman, he probably prefers night work. R. Stephen Sherman Jr., Greensboro, North Carolina. That's really funny about the owl just because of what's been going on with the current DC with the uh, Court of Owls going on now. So that's a great letter to read. You've restored Batman to his creative of the you've restored Batman to his creature of the night image. Now Robin needs a dose of the same medicine. Make him more mysterious, more suspicious and deductive. More important, make him stick to his vow made in 1940 to battle crime unendingly, even to the point of working outside the law. But please, don't let him lose his sense of humor. Pat Bond. I like the idea of Robin having assistants. Robin rooters would make great assistants, but I don't mean those man-crazy females from BF number 12. Females. I can just hear Donovan now. I mean civilized, intelligent guys and girls who are thinking of becoming police officers, lawyers, reporters, or investigators. They sincerely want to help Robin and gain experience by doing so. Note, I said helping, not getting in the way. Calvin Johnson, Mount Vernon, New York. Robin should be changed, but not the way Craig Boldman described. Have Robin graduate, using graduation as a reason for a new name and costume in addition. Robin could go to work for the government in Washington, putting him close by for team-ups with Batgirl. Shipper! Dave Shorer, West Tacoma, Washington. As we stated in an earlier column, it is not the costume which is respected or feared so much as it is the man inside it. So we'll continue to develop Dick Grayson as a person and let his costumed alter ego adjust accordingly. Bob Rosakis. Wow, that was a whole lot of letters. Of course, some of them didn't really apply to... Batgirl, uh, but it's just interesting where some person suggests, you know, let's change this, let's have the, you know, Robin Rooter's great idea, and it's 
like a pack of fangirls. And then, you know, Robin Hood. I mean, weren't they even thinking about uh, Green Arrow there? I don't know. When does Green Arrow f- first appeared in 1941? So, it, yeah. I don't know. Why would someone suggest Robin Hood when we have a Robin Hood-esque guy? But anyways, enough of that. On to the next issue of Batman Family. Batman Family number 16, Fury of the Five-in-One Foe. Cover date, February to March, 1978. Bob Rosakis, AI writer, Don Heck and John Collardo, delineating duo, Jerry Serpe, four-color collaborator, Milt Snappen, W3 on AIM scale letterer. Man, gotta come up with something clever, I guess. So it's not just writer, artist, that sort of thing. Also included in this issue are Bullseye for Murder with Man Bat and Jason Bard. And Bureau of Missing Villains featuring The Calendar Man. Chapter 1, starring Robin and guest starring the Harlequin, a.k.a. Duella Dent. Robin and Harlequin come upon a man dressed in blue with one hand a chainsaw and the other hand an axe. And this man is cutting into a brick wall. Yeah, I don't get it either. This is the flashy Harlequin's first solo outing since the Teen Titans split up. And she uses all sorts of gadgets. The lumberjack, as the man is called and who has a French accent, is not easily taken down, cutting through her flying saucer. She tries to stop his chainsaw with her quick rusting super seltzer, but he cuts open a yellow van with his axe, letting out a pack of dogs. The dog catcher yells at the lumberjack just before getting kicked into his own van. The dogs distract Robin and Harlequin. Robin wraps the lumberjack up with a bat rope, follows that up with a flying tackle, but forgets that the wall that they are about to land onto has been weakened by lumberjack's cutting. Robin is out. Harlequin tries to use her special gum to wrap up lumberjack, but he gets out of it before the cops get him. Three hours later, Dick and Laurie are at the Hudson U cafeteria, and Dick is trying to explain why he was driving Duola uh, Dent into town. Laurie is not eating her hamburger. Dick notices in the paper that the humiliated dog catcher resigned, and the villain escaped with the saddle. Dick takes a bite of Laurie's hamburger and discovers it is bad. Yes, this is the sort of thing we deal with here. Dick then invites Laurie to go to Washington with him to work with Commissioner, I'm sorry, to work with Congresswoman Gordon. Chapter 2, starring Batgirl and guest starring Commissioner Gordon. Babs tells her father about a new villain in Coast City calling himself the Galloping Ghost, who rode into the Ferris Aircraft Factory and stole the blueprints of one of its latest developments. When the police investigated, they found out that somebody had been pumping all sorts of garbage into the river behind the factory, this scandal resulting in the city water commissioner resigning. Gordon doesn't much care for the villain as long as he stays out of Gotham. The two are on a train, and half the passengers are members of Gotham PD, escorting Roscoe Dombre, a gangland hitman who's turned state's evidence to appear before a federal grand jury. In case anyone notices that the car is full of cops, the sheriff of Ortega County, the man who brought in Dombre, came up with the cover that they are escorting the famous Rajan's Ruby to Washington. All of a sudden, a one-man commando hurls a grenade at the train and derails it. He comes aboard, but is obviously well-protected because the cop's bullets do nothing. Luckily, Babs uses the distraction to turn it to back roll and comes through the train door to get the drop on Johnny G.I., the bulletproof soldier. He flips back roll. The commish tries to help her, but only gets in the way. Johnny G.I. threatens to blow the train with the grenade unless everyone gets back. Back roll gets a drop on him again, but she is blasted by his jet backpack. The GI flies out of the train, drops a grenade, Batgirl kicks a window, and Gordon throws a grenade out. Chapter 3. Guest starring the original Batgirl. 
The news is reporting the train caper, while Babs sets the dinner table for Lori, Dick, and the commish. Babs tries to take it easy, even though she was hurt after getting slammed around the train. Gordon tells his daughter that the sheriff, with the idea, resigned his office. And Babs lets slip that the commish hurt himself after tripping over Babs' pocketbook and hit his head on a seat. Oh, that fuddy-duddy. Lori tells Dick not to turn off the TV because she wants to see Kathy Barbagani from Hudson U on the Miss Stars and Stripes pageant in Hawaii with Vicki Vale, Powers, and Betty Kane, now a tennis star, as judges. Dick readily agrees since he likes looking at beautiful girls in bathing suits. Ugh. The commission ships Dick with Babs, oh my, and Lori, but they eat dinner and then sit down to watch the show. As Miss Texas steps up, a magenta-clad villain by the name of the Laser Razor shoots a laser and cuts off all her hair. The original Batgirl recently returned to action as a Teen Titan West in Teen Titans 50-52, a.k.a. Betty Kane, goes into action, holding her own, then slipping up. But Dick sees that the guy's costume is all red except for one boot, which is green. He must be colorblind. He tries to steal the TV equipment. Babs gets Dick to help her in the kitchen, and they both discuss the recent cases, doping out, this is their words, doping out, that they are one and the same, and know where his next stop is going to be. Chapter 4, co-starring Background Robin. A week later in the House of Representatives, the President is about to address a joint session of Congress on a new energy policy. A voice interrupts him, telling him that every elected official there, representatives, senators, and the president himself, must resign over nationwide TV or they will all die in office. Babs is there, and she is communicating with Robin, who happens to be in the monitor room. Babs, sporting green hair, stands up and addresses the representatives. The men in the monitor room are aghast because of this green hair, attempting to fix the hue on their screens, except for one man. Given the fact that the dynamite duo knows the villain is colorblind, this has to be the guy. Robin tells Babs to go, and she suggests that everyone resign unanimously. They do, and moments later, Backer and Robin follow their man outside into his home base. Inside a mobile home nearby, Robin and Batgirl tussle with the man, all the while telling him that his motives and game was too obvious. There is a bet going between Robin and Batgirl as to whether he was tipping his hand all along. The villain is angry that they are basically calling him stupid and tries to use all of his previous gadgets on them. Batgirl and Robin turn around and use the chainsaw and jetpack on him and take him down. Batgirl wants to add the jetpack to her arsenal and the dynamite duo drop off the villain and go off to get a burger. Epilogue. In their hero garb and at a public diner, the two go through the case and the motives. Because there's just so much going on in this epilogue, I thought that I would just read it. And so, later that night... His M.O. was so obvious. First he disgraced a town dog catcher, then a city water commissioner, a county sheriff, a state beauty pageant winner. The only possible target left was somebody in the federal government. That's plural, B.G. Somebodies. And he didn't even realize he was doing it in that sequence. Then there's the other obvious thing he did. Each crime he committed was designed to steal something for use in his next disguise. The lumberjack stole a saddle, which the galloping goat use, GG stole blueprints for the jetpack, and though Johnny G.I. didn't steal anything, he tried to. He was after the fictitious Rajah's ruby, and rubies are used in lasers. So when the laser razor stole the TV camera, please, Robin, enough explanations. Now let me tell you about his motive, which I uncovered. 
He's held a grudge against all elected officials ever since he lost a rigged election in his hometown. It was his warped way of trying to discredit the election process, a nifty bit of detection on our parts, and that's why we make a heck of a twosome. Uh-oh. That sounds like the opening for another round of your Macho Romeo routine. True? Why, uh, of course not, especially while Lori, especially not while Lori is here in town with me. He, you'd probably tell her, you know something, partner? You're probably right. And there we have it. Shipping, 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 shipping. Gotta love it. Well, you know, Robin is proud of the uh, the teamwork. Babs tries to cut him off. <laughs> and then he allows it because Lori is in town. Boy. Well, there are a few vintage stories that I will say this about because, you know, you have to keep it all in perspective and, and you know, it's Silver Age or what have you. I guess now we're kind of in the Bronze Age, aren't we now? But I really didn't like this story. There's absolutely too much going on and it's tied together by such a stretchy, elastic thread. And again, we see the epilogue being used for conclusion purposes. For a story that takes nearly 40 pages to set up, how can it be cleanly wrapped up only in one? I just don't like the two heroes talking over coffee and explaining everything which should have been shown to us. I also think that it's a little unbelievable that, you know, even given the intelligences of these characters, they're able to tie everything together. I mean, it's so, it's so loose. I just don't know how that worked out. And man, the colorblindness of the villain. Now, I do have colorblind friends. Was that really what did him in? One minor detail that potentially has nothing to do with the overall story, just that his boot is green where it should be a pinkish red. And then this leads to a green-haired Babs with no green eyes, which is, you know, sad, depressing. I just don't know. That one boot is what tipped everyone off. So weird. I did at least like the number of the different characters who were involved in this issue. It seemed great to have such a variety. It's really weird to have the two in a public place, Batgirl and Robin at the end, in their outfits. Why not in their civvies? This is actually the second time I've seen this happen recently. I read a Young Justice comic, and Ms. Martian was not disguised in a public diner. She was just in her green skin, and I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. I do like that the two are eating a burger. Um, and then earlier, you know, we had Dick and Laurie, and they were well, eating burgers, not really, but at Hudson U, so it's kind of uh, going back to that. And speaking of Dick and Laurie, it seems like there is some trouble in paradise with these two, and the shipping, of course, of Dick and Babs has increased. I mean, it's kind of awkward when the commish says, why are you watching those ladies, or why do you want to watch those ladies on TV when you have two beautiful, gir two beautiful girls here? Um... Babs and Lori, so kind of uh, kind of interesting. Finally, I wonder what is with the writing around the commish as of late. He really seems to be portrayed as inept and foolish. I mean, why are we trying to kill him off or get rid of him? Kind of interesting. Okay, and the letters page. Dear Editor, 13 is supposed to be an unlucky number, but that certainly wasn't the case with Batman Family number 13. We got a classic story, one of the best I've read in a long time. My favorite page in the whole story was page 18, where we finally get to know Robin's true feelings about Batgirl. Ooh, shipper. I'm sure Batgirl likes Robin, too, based on her response on page 7, when Robin asks her if she has room for a passenger. For you, I'll make room anytime. I do hope you'll continue developing the relationship in the future. The art by Don Newton, Marshall Rogers, and Bob Wiesek was out of this world. Batgirl, Robin, and Mambat never looked better. Most of all, I'd like to personally thank Bob Rosakis for bringing back so many long-forgotten members of the Batman family, villains included. In the past six months, we've seen the returns of 
Batwoman, Vicki Vale, The Outsider, Catman, and Freedom Fighters, and the original Batgirl in Teen Titans. What more could a fan seek or ask for? Mike Younger, Watertown, Massachusetts. Not much, Mike, except more of the same, which you're getting. Batgirl is on hand for a guest shot in this issue, along with the Harlequin in our Batgirl slash Robin tale, and Jason Bart appears in the Man Bat story, B.R. Dear Editor, Bob Rosakis may not be your best writer, wow, that's kind of awkward, uh, since he's writing to Bob Rosakis, but he's in the top five, and he moves up two notches in the past two months. The Man Who Melted Manhattan has a lot to do with it, being the best of the 13 issues of Batman Family you've done so far. It was great to find out Robin's feelings for Batgirl and to learn that they are much stronger than I anticipated. Robin really went into detail, and while some readers may accuse Bob of copping out by having Batgirl sleep, I have a sneaking suspicion that she was faking. Oh, yeah. In any event, these readers will undoubtedly complain about the sequence until Batgirl and Robin are happily married. Oh, my gosh. Living in a Gotham suburb and raising 2.5 children. Oh, the art was great throughout the issue. Don Newton and Marshall Rogers did some superb action sequences, and Bob Wiasek did a great job making the transition from Newton to Rogers and Rogers to Newton. The tie-ins with the other Rosaka-scripted magazines like Freedom Fighters and Teen Titans were a nice touch, and I'm glad to see some interesting subplots developing for Man Bat and the Dynamite duo. All in all, it was your best issue yet. Greg Showmaker, uh, Vallejo, California. The least you could do if you're going to tell me I'm not number one on your favorite writer's list is let us know who the other four guys are. B.R. Dear Editor, Bob Rosakis must really enjoy Batman Family. After all, not only does he handle the stories, but also the letter column. It must be fun to pick the letters you want to describe your stories. The Man Who Melted Manhattan had its good and bad points. The opening was downright terrible, Bob. You've got to stop being so gimmicky. Skipping to page 18, another bad point is apparent. Wow, this is like the opposite of the previous letter. Robin's feelings for Batgirl is a bad idea. Robin is about six years younger than Batgirl. Dick is a college student and Babs is a congressman. This is all going back to that first kiss. Oh my gosh. A romance developed between them could only be absurd and would ruin my enjoyment of the series. Even if Bob leaves this as it is now, it, it'll still be a mistake. Robin is mature enough to realize it wouldn't work. All, why Robin is mature enough? What about Batgirl? She's obviously the one ha that's been hands-off. Also, I wish you would separate Batgirl and Robin. In solo stories, I love them. Together, they make me sick. Oh, my gosh. And as much as I enjoy your work, Bob, you shouldn't be scripting either one. Robin should be more serious, more concerned with growing up as a superhero and developing into a good team leader for the Teen Titans. Batgirl should be treated as a bit older, more professional, and with a supporting cast of her own. But Bob should remain as a man-bap scripter. His work on Kirk Langstrom makes this one of the DC's finest series. Words cannot describe how pleased I am that Manbat has developed so well. Too bad he had to get involved with the cutesy couple this issue. David Dewitt, Manning, South Carolina. You're in the minority with your opinion about the Batgirl-Robin relationship, David. Oh boy, are ya. But just where it goes from here will be something ye scripter will have to work out with new editor Al Milgram who takes over Batman Family next issue when Batman Family becomes DC's fifth regular dollar comic. In addition to Batgirl, Robin, and Man Bat, who will be appearing in solo stories and team-ups, there will be a new Batman story and an adventure of our newest heroine, the Huntress, in every issue. As for picking the letters, all the mail is read by editor Julie Schwartz, who grades the letters A, B, C, etc. Wow, okay. These are then read by yours truly, who selects the best of the Schwartz picks for publication. And while most letters are just graded, some, like the one which follows, carry the editorial command, command print, uh, BR. 
That's interesting about the, the, the letter grades. I mean, does he even read anything below a, a C or anything? Okay, and here's this editorial command print. Uh, Dear Editor, as a whole, Batman Family Number no. 13 was a very well-written, well-thought-out, well-coordinated story, but there are a few minor problems which stand out. One is the overuse of puns throughout the issue. Sure, Robin is known for his puns, but they're usually few and far between. In this issue, while Batgirl and Robin are trapped on their bikes, oh my gosh, it sounded more like a romp in the park than certain death. And... Don't give us that ex old excuse that dumb puns are like a release to keep the hero or heroine sane. The only way such an excuse would work is if the jokes were prefaced by thought balloons realizing the danger of the situation. And even then, the joke should be funnier. Bob Rosakis is not exactly the king of the one-liners, but I feel he can come up with funnier material. As Mambat says, he'll just have to come up with some better lines. Todd Strandane, Great Falls, Montana. Sorry, I can't think of anything punny funny to say, B.R. Dear Editor, Batman Family continues to amuse and delight me. The Man Who Melted Manhattan was a ridiculous but very well done story. I could accept Alfred turning back into his alter ego of the outsider after that rap on the head, but after that, my suspicion of this belief had to be put on hold. Bob Rosakis will be forgiven for all of this nonsense, however, because he didn't even try to explain the main... <laughs> <laughs> Maniac motorcycles, the moonbeam, the Uturunku, or the meeting of melting of Manhattan. Such audacity deserves credit. A more important reason for my pleasure with this unlikely melange, however, is that in spite of all the absurd plot elements, the tale was extremely well written. It had excellent, uncorny, entertaining dialogue, clever super stunts, and admirable avoidance of camp, despite a plot which could have been used verbatim on you know what TV show. Wah, wah. And last, but certainly certainly not least, Bob's usual expert handling of the Batgirl-Robin relationship. This time he expanded on Robin's feelings for Batgirl in a very believable manner. This is turning into a very interesting situation. We have Dick and Lori on one hand and Dick slash Robin's confused feelings about his crime-busting partner on the other. And Babs won't even listen to him, though I'm not so sure she was asleep on page 18. Perhaps our favorite congresswoman has some feelings she doesn't wish to discuss? In any event, I'm sure Bob has plenty of surprises up his sleeve for us, and I can't wait till he springs them. Beth Montalone, Rochester, New York. Hey, she wrote in before. Dear Julie and Bob, I agree with the readers who want the return of the old Batman family members. I definitely think Julie Madison and Vicki Vale should be around, and the original Batgirl as well. And on a somewhat similar topic. Remember Commissioner Gordon's masquerade as Mystery Man? Why not have Tony Gordon, who appeared in Batman Family Number 12, take up his father's identity as Mystery Man? Being an ex-agent, he would have the necessary skills and training to make it in the superhero biz, and he could look after his little sister without her knowing it. As a brother of Batgirl, he would certainly uh, fit into the family. Finally, maybe I should classify my next, next subject as part of the family, but he is still in a class by himself, the he being Batmite. The day of the pest seems to be over, and though Mr. Mixia's Pitlick may hang on because he was the first, I don't expect to see another army of them throughout the superhero books, but I would like to see Batmite again. Maybe it's because he tried to help Batman instead of harm him, or because he looks so lovable in the new cartoon show. Whatever the reason, I would really like to see him again. Robert Salyan, Citrus Heights, California. Julie Madison turned up in a recent World's Finest. Batgirl is on hand this issue, and Vicki Vale powers will undoubtedly reappear in the future. As for Tony Gordon, we'll just have to wait and see. And Bat might? Ask editor Al Milgram. Maybe he'll like the idea. Bob Rosakis.
Next issue, kicking off our new dollar comic format, a Batman and Robin team-up scripted by Jerry Conway, plus Batfam regular Bob Rosaka supplies a Batgirl slash Batwoman slash Huntress adventurer, and the startling meeting of Man Bat and the Demon, all in Batman Family number 17, on sale the third week in January. So I'm wondering if this new dollar format was something that did Batman Family in because, yeah, we've got 17, which is kind of where it all starts, 17, 18, 19, and 20, so just four issues that it it worked, and I wonder if that, I don't know, kind of did it in. Who knows? But uh, did I even give a grade on this uh, this previous comic? Um, really low score. Just, you know, I didn't enjoy it. Three out of ten bats, so one of the lowest, I think, that I've I've given. Wow. Well, if you were there, if you survived with me, I know those stories. Those stories were so long, and especially the the second one. Well, thanks for surviving with me. Gonna take a break, and uh, when I come back, I will, re- I will review background number six, Birds of Prey number six, and the Huntress number six finale. And now, Zias's Radio Hour, featuring "Ain't No Rest for the Wicked" by Cage the Elephant. See you soon. Come on, I have an idea that Batman should look into this. And don't forget Robin! I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman! Look, look, the bat signal! Come on, chum, to the bat cave! car, right? Chicks love the car. I don't play favorites. Every criminal must be brought to justice. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. I swear to God. Swear to me! Ah! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Legends of the Batman. Everything Batman from the beginning at BatmanLegends.com. Your life, but you try to make a move, I won't think twice. I told him you could have my cash. 
Welcome back. Uh, you may have wondered why I <laughs> chose such a, a song, and it's kind of all I could think of. Um, it just kind of popped into my head when I thought about Birds of Prey, and we'll get into why, but just the guy um, kind of being mugged by Dinah and Ev, but uh, we, we will get to that. Uh, but first up, we have background number six, A House Made of Spun Glass. Writer Gail Simone, pencil Ardian Siaf, inker Vigente Cifuentes, and coerced... Ulysses Areola. The issue opens with a reference to Titanic and Bruce Wayne with the crowbar. As Gretel watches on, we see Batgirl kick Bruce in the head, apologize profusely, then get hit over the head by Mr. Wayne's personal assistant. Batgirl explains that she is not trying to hurt Mr. Wayne, but quickly realizes that due to Batman's resistance to every kind of mental attack in existence, he must be faking. Batgirl decides to go along with it, hoping that he is indeed faking, while Gretel prattles on about reloading her gun and only having three bullets. Batgirl knows she is not ready to engage in an actual fight with Batman, and readies a concussion battering. She flashes back to the beginning of her career, where she is trying to stand apart. Then she thinks about being in a hospital bed after she was shot by Joker. Batman came to visit her, and she feared that he would say the worst, but he only held her hand. In the present, Batgirl puts the battering away and talks Bruce down by using the tragedy of Bruce's parents. Bruce drops her crowbar and embraces Batgirl, tells her that he was mostly faking, and that she was always meant to be Batgirl. Bruce delays the ceremony and Gretel disappears. We then learn of Gretel's past. She was Lizzie Bonner, an up-and-coming journalist who had her sights on taking down Boss Whitaker. She was able to get close to him and all his shady dealings, but was found out and shot twice in the gut and once in the head. Against all odds, she survives, is not visited by anyone in the hospital, and somehow develops a power of suggestion. Back with Babs, she arrives home to find lots of baked goods and upset Alicia and Barbara Gordon Sr. Babs tries to act nice, but it is still uncomfortable, and Babs Sr. still has not told Jim that she is back in town. Babs does some research with the scanty information she has and is able to learn about Lizzie Bonner. She calls Bruce and they have a plan for the next night's ceremony. As Bruce is speaking, Gotham PD starts firing on him. Babs saves Bruce then beats up the cops before getting decked by Detective McKenna. Batman comes to her aid and they both race to Gretel, now sporting a blue wig. Batgirl tries to talk Gretel down and Batman helps her when Batgirl tackles Gretel off of the scaffolding and takes her to McKenna. McKenna gives Batgirl a pass but will be coming for her soon next up the joke revisited so this issue totally begins with a WTF moment and believe me people I never say WTF but it really fits this case why the heck does she reference Titanic and as the opening line I mean it doesn't even register 
how it relates when you read it. Um, when you first read it, I think you're just kind of like, what, Titanic? I mean, couldn't Batgirl have just said this is not going to end well? On the pro side of the issue, at least, you know, Batman does keep his characterization that we're used to from countless issues of Batman, and and it was just, and is actually withstanding the mind control mostly, and he does put on a good show. Of course, I just wonder what this mostly means. I guess that Greta was somehow able to impact him. I think it's dumb that Bruce's personal assistant hits Batgirl. Isn't it pretty obvious that Bruce is dangerous, not himself, and Batgirl is trying to help? She's really getting the raw end of the deal, first with McKenna, this, then with this lady. Of course we have to hear Bruce's tragic past again in order to snap him out of it. As if we could ever forget it, people. Then we have some sort of trip down memory lane with Batgirl. I do at least see where Simone is trying to go with this, but it really doesn't succeed, her origin so deep in character building in itself is reduced to one panel. Batman and Batgirl throughout this issue are portrayed as being really close, and it all, I think, seems really forced. Him hugging her and saying she was always meant to be Batgirl, easy chattering, which doesn't really match his personality, and I know that there are people that will disagree with me on that point, and, you know, racing to Gretel, all meant to show how loving they are towards one another. Too bad he can't show this love to Damien in the current Batman and Robin. In contrast to this is a strange relationship with Barbara Sr. Not only do we have an overly dramatic Elysia, I mean, seriously, it's like something coming out of a TV comedy, freaking out about all these baked goods, but also Mother of the Year baking lots of carb-filled treats. What is this? A pilot for an NBC dramedy? Why is she in the apartment? Why hasn't she called Jim? Uh, it just seems really weird. What are we supposed to, to think of Bab Sr. right now? I don't like the fact that Babs can suddenly find total biographies on suspects with only a little bit of scattered information that does not even really make sense. It's like a puzzle. How is she able to make out 38 caliber plus 3 bullets from I just loaded my gun back girl but I only have 3 bullets? I know that Babs is smart and I know that quote she is the smartest person in the you know in DC universe right now end quote. But she was smart in the Silver Age, and still had to do a little more investigating than this. I feel like this is lazy writing in order to skip B, right, from step A and go right to C. Next up is Gretel. Who is this character, and why should we even care about her? We're suddenly inundated with information about her, as if we will empathize with her tragedy. How is she able to survive, how she gets these powers, and why no one visits her at the hospital are all questions that will never be answered, but seem necessary to her character and then the whole thing from the last issue the last issue that she really liked that Batgirl could feel pain because she can't feel pain and she she's jealous of that where's that coming into play it's probably to do with the bullet in her brain probably cutting off some some pathways that she certainly needs but it's not explained at all it's just sort of like forgotten about a detail that is forgotten Okay, so it makes sense why she's out for the Whitakers, but why go after Bruce? Why have the mind-controlled Whitakers try to rob people in the previous issues? Connections. Are there any? We don't really find out why she can't feel anything in the previous issue, like I said. You know, though, um, nor do we know why she has that orgasmic experience before she walks off the bridge. What was that about? Griddle seems like a throwaway villain with depth forced upon us, but it doesn't make sense in the end. As far as I can tell, Simone is trying to draw a comparison between Babs and Gretel. In Simone's writing, Babs had a bad accident, but survived um, partially because, you know, people loved her and they, they came and visited her. Whereas Gretel had a bad accident, but becomes a bad person, you know, because no one came to see her. 
and this isn't, you know, Simone's writing, obviously, not kind of the true statement, but, you know, thus, I guess, Gretel is the Babs that could have been. If this isn't the, the intent, then it really doesn't work, because there is so much more surrounding this than just people coming to visit. Babs is gifted with determination, a strong will, and mind, and a good heart. And there was probably something already in Wesley that would lead her in this direction, and she obviously, she obviously had a weak character to let evil overcome her. Dear Miss Simone, never try to draw a comparison like that again, thanks. As a final punch to the gut, we have Detective McKenna punch back girl. Great. Then Batman standing in front of her and saying she will have to arrest them both. You know, why can't cops in comics see the bigger picture? This is going to turn out like ASM, isn't it? That's Amazing Spider-Man for those that don't read Marvel. Batgirl will be the hero that is found in the light, and the cops will go after her all the time. And she is. She is the opposite of Batman. Batman always stays in the dark, and Batgirl is unafraid to be uh, in the light, just sort of like Robin is. And I feel like with McKenna the way she is now, Batgirl is just always going to be in the sights of the Gotham Police Department. I give this 2 out of 10 bats, probably the lowest I've ever given a Batgirl comic. Dear Lord, please let this be the bottom and let it go up from here. Uh, but on the opposite side of the spectrum, we've got Birds of Prey number 6, Clean Getaway. Writer Dwayne Swarzynski, art Javier Pina, and colors June Chung. The issue begins with Brendan Bowman, a man in a suit and a cubicle who generally has bad days at work, but today woke up happy. He sees a beautiful Bond chick checking him out and uh, at the corner deli, and he decides to talk to her, until he realizes his cell phone is missing. He looks near the entrance of the deli and sees Starling, with a bandaged hand and leg, holding the phone. She walks out, and he follows her into a dark alley. Once there, Ev points behind Brendan to Dinah and explains that he will be coming with them. They end up letting him go, read, run, free back to the office, and Dinah calls Katana to tell her she is up. At the office, Brendan doesn't call the police, but posts a strange mugging on the hive. The only response he gets back is, a dollar, a dollar, a ten o'clock scholar. Forty minutes later, in an abandoned tunnel under Gotham, Katana is trying to inject a half-naked Brendan with a syringe before he knocks it out of her hand. Ivy tries to calm him down, but obviously that doesn't work. Brendan is thankful when he sees Batgirl arrive, but he is wrong to be, as Batgirl picks up the syringe and sticks him just as he begins to say a rhyme that would most certainly have ended with bits of Bowman everywhere. Later, a drowsy Brendan, now Brendan Hill, not Brendan Bowman, mistake, wakes up and Dinah explains why they did what they did. Trevor Cahill is there and says that someone has been messing around in their heads for about a year now. Each time Brendan has felt so good about his life, it's been because of the drugs in his brain. It also appears that Brendan goes by another name, Donovan Morgan Grant, since he was the one who kissed Black Canary way back in issue number one. Dinah tells him about Choke, and that healthy, athletic workaholics are the prime target because their periodic absences can be explained by company needs. They get a message, they go into a trance, they do a job for whatever Choke wants, and then they return, rewarded with good feelings and good job performance. Brendan is rightly upset that he has been used for no known purpose and offers his aid in the coming mission. Starling thinks it is a good idea to have an inside man, but Dinah disagrees, citing the risk. Don't be mad, Starling. Flashback to the end of the last issue, where Ev has leapt over the side of the bridge into the water to avoid the mercs that come to get her, but she's shot in the land, hand and leg. Apparently... Choke messed with her memories enough to lead her into a trap set up by private mercenaries. She got herself somewhere and bandaged herself up with her shirt. 
According to Uncle Earl and Virgil, though she doesn't mention it, fortune favors the bold. Dinah finally agrees with Ev that Brenda may be their best shot, just after revealing that Uncle Earl once tried to stab Ev in the face. Curiouser and curiouser. Brendan goes back to work with the birds on calm in his ear when all of a sudden his co-workers start to all say the same thing in attack. The birds come to the rescue in the best arena ever, an office with cubicles. Choke asks Dinah if she can trust her team and she replies completely. Next, Choke revealed. Whew, man, the whole issue seems really scrambled. Um, even after reading it twice, it's difficult to make, it's difficult to make it make total sense. It's difficult for it to make total sense. Maybe that's a better wording there. It's worse in the beginning than it is midway through the end, though. Uh, it's just you don't expect it to start up with it w w when it did, and then you're starting this perspective of this guy. Um, you know, the issue starts off strangely, almost as if it were the beginning of a Twilight Zone episode. The narration seems like a third-person omniscient that is similar to Julius Caesar's perspective in his writing. Um... But it's really, is it really first person, but treated like third person? And I say Julius Caesar is because he wrote a lot of things. Um, but, in, and they're like basically memoirs. I mean, the Gallic Wars, obviously he was there. So he's writing about him, but he will say Caesar. He'll use third person, which is very weird. So that's why I'm talking about this here. So it's treated like third person, but it really seems like it's first person talking. It's good to see Donovan Morgan Grant again, and now we know a little more about him. Uh, so it's nice to see the story really pulling certain threads and details along. I don't like Ev's debacle on the previous issue being written away so easily. That's how we ended. That's how I expected it to be uh, to to begin this issue. But then we just have one page of how she got out of it. We don't know where she went. I would like to know. Who knows? I did enjoy seeing Brendan's reaction to the, or Brandon's reaction to the different birds entering, you know, nervousness with Katana, fear with Ivy, and then relief with Batgirl. And speaking of Batgirl, it's really hard to tell what side she's on, and this is one of the things that adds to the confusion. We seem to go back and forth between her being hands-off and her being an ally with the team. Can there be some consistency? I wonder what the bird said to get Trevor Cahill into such a sketchy situation as to be kidnapping and drugging a group of people and keeping them in a basement. I wish we would have seen how Canary got all of her information about all the different agents. This sort of ties to the previous issue where she knew just from a newspaper clipping and then she's meeting the birds, but there's nothing in between. I like the realistic discussion that Canary and Starling have in regards to using Brandon as bait. And, you know, it seems like a lot has been revealed in this issue, even though it was confusingly done and I'm interested to see how it will all be tied together and concluded in the next issue with the reveal of choke seven out of five I'm sorry 7.5 out of 10 birds and my final issue of the episode huntress number six of six crossbow at the crossroads part six the final huntress issue of the miniseries writer Paul Levitz penciler Marcus Toe inkers John Dell colorist Andrew Dollhouse the issue opens on the Isle of Capri, where Ibn Hassan, the son of the recently slain chairman, is furious that no one could protect his father for a week after all the things he did for the country. Ibn Hassan will not allow Huntress to take another victim, but he will not agree to be her being arrested. Rather, he will pay a billion euros to see her dead. Meanwhile, Helena, in yellow, not purple, speeds around the curvy roads of Capri, reflecting on the traffic as it compares to Gotham. Since the policia now have a picture of Helena, they have set up a checkpoint and are checking IDs. Before they can get to her, Huntress jumps out of her car and ziplines down a power core. A uh, power 
cable. At the end of the line, she hits a marina and snags a boat. On the way, she calls Alessandro, and he relates to her the bounty on her head, that every officer in Italy is probably looking for her, and even the American NSA may be tapping phone calls to look for her. Learning that Ibn Hassan did this all from Capri, she turns around and tells Alessandro that she will be very curious to read the ending of the story. That night, Huntress scales the cliffs leading up to Ibn Hassan's fortress, reflecting that every fortress has a weak point, and they obviously did not think anyone would use this one. She reaches three sewer outputs, two of which are smelly, and one which may lead to a pool. At the other end, two guards are on duty, one actually trying to do his job. As the dutiful one checks out a squeaky filter, Huntress pops out of the pool, takes out the guards, and finds Ibn Hassan just as he wakes up. Huntress at least compliments him for sleeping alone, and Ibn Hassan makes one brave statement about his father before he turns into a little girl. Huntress calls the chairman a tyrant and a thief who stole his nation's wealth and the souls of its daughters. She gave them justice. Ibn Hassan does an about-face, saying he is not his father, and that he could do much for her if only she spare him. Huntress considers this and agrees, but he must not send another girl into sex trafficking, thanks him for the billion-dollar bounty compliment, and says he should make it double or nothing, and if no one collects in a year, two billion should be donated to charities for abused women. If he keeps these promises, she won't kill him. Later at the airport, Helena, once again in purple, is having a tough time with her flight, first no peanuts, then security coming after her. But it wouldn't be a challenge without the bounty. She considers her options when Kara, as I believe will be Kara Zorel, pushes open a door and offers her a way out, and they take to the skies, with Kara calling Helena partner. Next up, World's Finest. I thought that this was a good issue. Um, but it does go by so quickly, and it seems like many things are left unfinished. Ibn Hassan really wants blood, and he goes to an extreme length, you know, being a billion-dollar euro price on Helena's head, but then he turns like a leaf in the middle of the issue. Why did Helena even let him live if she killed his father? How will one person make a difference in this trade? You know, I think, you know, I'm happy that she is more on the, the good side of the moral line, but she already killed once, and I think to just leave him there is sort of naive, and she should have taken him out. The conversation between Alessandro and Helena seems misplaced somehow. What does it accomplish? It just seems like it leaves the relationship open with probably no way of seeing it resolved, and, and it doesn't. Re I'm interested in seeing how the story ends. I don't really understand that. I guess I just wanted something more from this reporter vigilante angle. Some details. Number one, how did the cops get down the hill to the harbor so quickly behind Helena when she used a belt, yeah, I'm not going to get into that, to slide down the uh, the power cable? I don't know how that happened. I like Huntress in the sewer scene, but honestly, I have no conceivable idea how she fit into the pool filter. And then another one, Kara uh, mentions Michael, whom, uh, or who, I guess, I assume is Michael Holt, a.k.a. Mr. Terrific. But, you know, I like how it sets up uh, World's Finest, really, and I'm excited for that. I guess it'll be interesting what identity of Power Girl we have, as I do believe it is Kara Zor-El, because she isn't, it's not written Karen in the, in the comics, so it is Kara. And... I don't, it'll be great to see what Earth they're on and um, Huntress's origin, if we can get into that and see if I am right in my belief that Batman and Catwoman are her parents. But we can only we can only see and wait and see. Yeah, eight out of ten cannolis. Uh, thanks so much for a great series that really destroyed my 
uh, expectations. That's it for the comic reviews. Next up we have Babs in the Tube. Now this is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film, and currently I'm watching the 1966 Batman TV series. Next up we have episode 108, uh, was season 3, episode 14, Catwoman's Dress to Kill. It aired December 14, 1967. Starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Bird Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Stafford Rep as Chief O'Hara, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. We've got Eartha Kitt as Catwoman guest starring, James Griffith as Manx, Karen Huston as Queen Bess. Debut, this is the debut of the third Catwoman. An envious Catwoman disrupts a luncheon honoring the ten best-dressed women in Gotham City and sets off a hair-raising, irreparable ruining of all the ladies there. Later, Catwoman invades a magazine fashion show and attempts to swipe all of the one-of-a-kind dresses. While her henchmen Angora and Manx subdue Batman and Robin with some bolts of cloth, Catwoman bolts into the model's dressing room, knowing full well that the naturally gentlemanly dynamic duo wouldn't dare enter a lady's dressing room without their eyes being closed. Batgirl arrives to free the duo from the cloth, and, with her eyes wide open, enters the dressing room alone and is overpowered by Catwoman, who spirits her off to her catwear in an abandoned loft in the garment district on 32 Pussyfoot Road before the dynamic duo realize what has happened. Believing Catwoman plans the pilfering of the Golden Fleece, a solid gold dress belonging to the visiting Queen Bess, the Catwoman later contacts the Batman and informs him of her catwear's location, where she has tied Batgirl down to a conveyor belt leading to a giant pattern-cutting machine, which in a matter of minutes will cut her into a perfect pinafore. Believing Catwoman plans the pilfering of the Golden Fleece, a solid gold dress belonging to the visiting Queen Bess of Belgravia from the Belgravian Embassy, the caped crusader finds himself in somewhat of a dilemma. As the Catwear and the Embassy are miles apart, he is torn between rescuing Batgirl and preventing an international incident by stopping Catwoman's theft of the fleece. A quick-thinking Batman phones Alfred Pennyworth and sends him to rescue the dynamic Daredevil. Alf disguises himself as the world's oldest living hippie in order to prevent Batgirl from recognizing him and tip her off as to the connection between Batman and Bruce Wayne. Batgirl then rushes by Batgirl's cycle to the embassy to join her partners in crime fighting. Meanwhile, Batman and Robin are already there to confront Catwoman, who is convinced that they have sacrificed Batgirl in her time of need in order to arrest her. She soon learns differently when Batgirl arrives to join the Caped Crusader and the boy wonder in apprehending Catwoman, Angora, and Manx. The dynamic trio is given honorary medals by the Belgravian Embassy when they learn that Egghead and Cossack Queen Olga are up to no good again. <sighs> so there are some really cute moments. Dick is going to, to the prom, and that's how we first see uh, Dick and Bruce. Um, they are trying to purchase Dick's first tuxedo. I do wonder who his date is. Could it be Lori? I wonder how Batman and Robin could have room enough to change in the back of the limo. And then, of course, they're running three miles to Gotham Central. How could this ever seem like a good idea to Batman? He doesn't want to take a taxi for fear of being too conspicuous, but what is more conspicuous than two colorful crime fighters running through a town? Wow. So apparently the fashion back then was women wearing less than ever before. I really wonder what they think of today's women. This entire episode reminds me somewhat of Batgirl's costume cut-ups. What with the weird hair issues, um, and then all the strange and embarrassing things that happened to Batman and Robin. 
a great quote, Holy Robert Louis Stevenson, when they're talking about Batgirl being kidnapped. What happened to the cat, uh, to the cat woman that only stole things related to cats? Kind of wondered about that. Whenever I hear the name Golden Fleece, I think of Jason and the Argonauts. Um, Catwoman, for whatever reason, has a phone in the shape of a lamb. Actually, thinking about it now, it's probably because since she is in the garment district, I guess lamb meaning wool, I guess it makes sense. But still, I would have preferred a cat. And then Alfred's disguise as a hippie is hilarious. Though, I don't really see the need since Batgirl and Alfred have already had a few interactions. And I don't really think she would have seen some sort of connection between him and Bruce Wayne. But... Say la vie. But a good episode overall. A good start, or a great start, I guess, for, for Eartha Kitt, the third Catwoman. Okay, next up we have Shipper Spotlight. I love shippers. Let me tell you about shippers. Get over your own shipping bullshit. Let, let me tell you about shippers. <laughs> get over get Get over your own shipping bullshit. I love shippers. 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 Let me tell you about shippers. Stop talking about that. Shippers. I love shippers. Dick and Babs. Dick 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 and Babs. Batman and Cat Catwoman. There we go. For the shippers, Batman's married to the Joker. To the Joker. There better not be Damien Seth 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 any shippers I'll kill them. Dick and Babs. Remember that Shipper Spotlight is a segment wherein I pick a particular couple, whether it be in the comics or in TV or movies, and I go through their first hint of romance, their history, and then I tell you if it's hot or not, and I do this all under 120 seconds. So today's Shipper Spotlight is between Killer Croc and Baby Doll of the Batman the Animated Series continuity. First hint of romance was the episode Love is a Croc. In a televised court case, Killer Croc was declared sane by a judge and escaped his straitjacket at the end of the competency hearing. He violently escaped the courthouse, only to be taken down by Batman. Baby Doll, who has witnessed this scene, sympathized with Croc and helped him break out of a prison truck heading to the state prison. Together, Baby Doll and Croc set up a home in the sewers and went on a crime spree. Be- spree becoming known as Gotham's Bonnie and Clyde. They robbed water locales such as Jewelry Mart and their popularity spread all the way to Metropolis where Superman allegedly claimed to be too busy to stop them. Croc relished in the fact that all of Gotham was panic-stricken and began secretly spending time with women at the local bait shops. Baby Doll and Croc next attempted to rob a riverboat casino where they were stopped by Batman and Batgirl. They escaped with a fraction of the loot and Croc angrily left their lair for the night, unknowingly followed by Baby Doll. Croc made known his plan to leave her after a few more robberies. The next day, Baby Doll apologized to Crocky and claimed to have a new plan, the so-called big one. They broke into the Gotham power plant on Mid-River Island and Croc thought the plan was to hold the city ransom. He tried to stop Baby Doll when he learned that she planned to destroy them and the city. Croc is drawn into a fight with Batman after attempting to warn him of Baby's crime. He attempted to kill Baby Doll and Batman and is severely burned when he reached for hot water pipes. Baby Doll runs over to him and laments how happy they could have been together, like in TV. Now, a quote to summarize this hot or not, because this is a strange pairing, to be sure. Just think of Shirley Temple and a crocodile man. That's basically what it is. So Babs asks, what do you think they do on a date? And Bruce says, 
I don't even want to think about it. Exactly, Bruce. Hot or not, this couple is not hot and slightly disturbing. Oh, boy. Yeah, send me recommendations. I mean, they can be off the wall like that. They can have... And, you know, however off the wall that was, that has an actual legitimate um, history with it. I wonder if there's a fan base. I should see if there's any fan fiction for Killer Croc and Baby Doll. But yeah, send in if you have any couples that you really want to to hear on this show. Uh, finally, the last segment is literary recommendation. And I just thought about this when I started recording that I had not picked out uh, a recommendation. And I do have to say, sometimes I do this. I recommend that you see Hunger Games. And see, last month I recommended Hunger Games. See Hunger Games the movie. It was so good. It's And if you really like the Hunger Games novel, then you will like this movie. It stays very faithful to it. And it's not Twilight, people. That is like the one thing I can tell you. It is not Twilight. It is so much better. Uh, we have this, we have this strong heroine and I don't know, the acting is top notch. Great action. Of course there is, you know, a little bit of romance, but again, not Twilight, but I really recommend it. I went to see the midnight showing of it, uh, which may have been a good or a bad decision. I love seeing midnight shows of particular movies, especially superhero movies and, and things that I'm just really excited about. But the next day I had to go on a retreat with uh, with some women from church. So that was, I was pretty tired for the rest of the day, but uh, or the rest of the weekend. But it was great, and I really recommend that. Oh, well, final comments. Um, with... Batman family number 15, we actually end the year of 1977, and I kind of like to go back and see, like, what was the best, what was the worst, and I definitely think of this particular year, the best was uh, Adventure Comics number 453, you too can be a superhero, remember, with little Babs there, and you don't know it's Babs until the very end, Uh, but the worst was Batman family number 14, old superheroines never die, they just fade away. Well, send any questions or comments to backroadtooracle at gmail.com. Of course, you can like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, backroadtooracle. Continue to sign the petition to get Batgirl Year One back into production. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks also to TV.com for the episode summary of Catwoman's Dress to Kill. Well, I hope you enjoy the spring weather. Um, Get out there, start cycling. And for those of you that still have snow coming, you are lucky. So I think you should still enjoy that, too. But until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?